Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 23rd of June, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, and myself, Brian Gerrish. Uh, well, variants, variants everywhere, and uh, we've got to be told about them. So Deliveroo, uh, our favourite uh, food delivery platform, uh, is uh, now going to be delivering variants as well. Well, no, not quite. But what they are going to be doing is notifying customers uh, through their app and website to let them know if surge testing is happening in their area. Uh, as part of efforts to strengthen the decisive action already taken by the government to tackle rising cases of variants of concern, trademark, across the country. Uh, this new tool means that when customers are using the Deliveroo app, notifications will be visible, visibly targeted, uh, visible in targeted areas uh, where the new COVID-19 variant is new, known to be spreading fastest. So that should make us run to Deliveroo at every opportunity uh, to get our food from there. Yeah, It's theatre. Yes. It's more theatre. But on slightly better news, perhaps, let's uh, consider this. Uh, the government has decided or that there's going to be, uh, they're, they're funding a UK ivermectin trial. Uh, now, of course, ivermectin has been uh, considered by many to be a, 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 a prophylactic, an effective, yeah. an effective prophylactic for dealing with uh, COVID-19. Uh, but it hasn't had uh, any of the attention of certain other types of medication. So uh, the University of Oxford are going to be uh, trialling uh, ivermectin to over 50s who have COVID symptoms to see if it will keep them out of hospital. It's coming under the uh, title of principal trial. Uh, and this is the Oxford University principal website. Uh, ivermectin to be investigated as soon as uh, as a possible treatment for COVID-19 in Oxford's principal trial. Uh, they're saying the drug has become controversial. Uh, because it was promoted in third world countries in South America, South Africa, places like this. Uh, but uh, studies have shown it to be of small or low quality is what they're saying, uh, basically. So they want to do a proper study now to make sure uh, that it's uh, it's going to work. Shouldn't we have expected the proper study to have been taken place before the vaccines were pumped out? Uh, is my first point. Th this is a very good point, uh, and we'll come on to this in a second. Uh, let's just look and see what uh, what the Oxford University uh, representative here, Professor Chris Butler, has to say. Uh, ivermectin is readily available globally, has been in wide use for many other infectious conditions, so it's a well-known medicine with a good safety profile. And because of the early promising results in some studies, it's already being widely used to treat COVID-19 in several countries. Uh, by including ivermectin in a large-scale trial like principal, we hope to generate robust evidence to determine how effective the treatment is against COVID-19. And I think this is the key point, and whether there are benefits or harms associated with its use. Um, so that's the, you asked the question, why was this not done before? Uh, of course, they rushed through the vaccination program, but they delayed at every opportunity. Uh, the use of iver, uh, the, the, the accreditation of ivermectin or, the, or for example, hydroxychloroquine as well. Um, but of course, we should uh, just remind ourselves that uh, really the, the chief medical officer shouldn't have any problem with the use of ivermectin. Uh, this is a paper entitled Effective Ivermectin uh, on Mosquitoes Fed on Humans, uh, the Potential of Oral, Oral Insecticides in Malaria Control. Uh, and, uh, well, who is one of the authors of this was none other than Chris Whitty himself. This was published in 2010. So he's absolutely familiar with the product. Uh, it should be no problem there. So he's got a problem, isn't he? Because he's written this. But on the other hand, Billy Gates has been funding his project. So 
Well, so which way does he go? Yes. So they're claiming that ivermectin is now the seventh treatment to be investigated in the principal trial and is uh, currently being evaluated alongside the influenza antiviral uh, Favi. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. Anyway, it begins with Favi. So anyway, uh, let's uh, have a look at this and remind ourselves what happened with, when they ran a similar trial on hydro hydroxychloroquine last year. Uh, and this is Reuters report. Uh, UK halts trial of hydroxychloroquine as useless for COVID-19 patients. Uh, well, if this is what Reuters were saying. If you want to find out what the real story was, head over to the UK column website uh, and you'll see this uh, article, the hydroxychloroquine scandal. Uh, and really the point here was that hydroxychloroquine was uh, uh, included in the recovery trials. They were called the recovery trials. Quite ironic, as you'll see. Uh, they were funded by uh, what were described as partners, including the BMGF and Oxford University, uh, who at the time were partnered with AstraZeneca in COVID-19 vaccine development, as you know. Uh, they didn't trial the Marseille treatment. Uh, you've got to read the article to get the detail on this. Um, and they give uh, hydroxychloroquine to the very sickest uh, COVID-19 patients. Of all the trials, theirs was the most, most lethal. Uh, the maximum dose of hydroxychloroquine in the UK is no more than 200 to 400 milligrams per day. Uh, while all of the known risks associated with the drug are encountered either with long-term sustained use or overdose, severe toxicity is possible if used incorrectly. Even before banning it, the French considered 1,800 milligrams per day to be lethal poisoning. So what did the UK do during this recovery trial? Uh, they gave people 2,400 milligrams, uh, six times the recommended maximum dose on the first day, followed up with 10 days of 800 milligrams on each day. Uh, unsurprisingly, the mortality rate amongst hydroxychloroquine subjects in the deceptively named recovery trials was 25.7%. They actually killed more COVID-19 patients than they would have done had they used the standard model of care, according to the article. So Ian Davis uh, wrote that, another superb article from Ian. Uh, and the question is, will they run the same type of uh, operation on uh, ivermectin? Um, I hope they don't. But I suspect they will, Mike, at the end of the day. Well, we still know that, of course, no full safety checks have been carried out on the, uh, the vaccines. And the UK column is going to continue to point out that the yellow card adverse reaction data, which the MHRA says is vital to know uh, the safety record of the vaccine, is being collected but not assessed in any shape or form. It's definitely disappearing off to the vaccine companies themselves, but the MHRA, which has a role to protect the uh, public from unsafe drugs, is simply not doing its job to investigate vaccines. And that is very clear. Now, lockdown or not to lockdown, will we be coming out of lockdown on the 21st of July or not? Or, or will we be back in lockdown in the autumn and the winter or not? Uh, perhaps uh, Australia gives us a clue. Um, here's Reuters reporting, Sydney isolated as COVID-19 clusters build uh, New Zealand curbs uh, in capital. So New Zealand has decided that people can tra cannot travel to or from New Zealand uh, and Australia uh, at the moment as a result of this. But let's just have a look at the detail. Uh, the latest virus cluster in Australia's most populous state of New South Wales has swelled to more than 30 in a week. So they are shutting down the entire uh, Sydney uh, on the basis of 30 people. 
In fact, it's 37 cases. And 16 cases, years. What, what does that mean? Exactly. Do you know what that means, Exactly. exactly. What that means is a positive <laughs> PCR test, of course. Yeah. So uh, what they're saying is that uh, 16 new infections on Wednesday, which brings the cluster to 37 cases, uh, and officials there are concerned about the extremely dangerous Delta variant. Uh, Sydney's 5.3 million residents will have to wear masks indoors and many will be banned from traveling out of the city. Now, this is a very key point because, of course, this whole thing from the beginning is not about infection. It's about behavior uh, and it's about behaviors that are necessary for uh, perhaps the green agenda. But anyway, part of that is whether you're going to be allowed to travel. So let's just remind ourselves of what David reported last week. Uh, and this is the uh, Town and Country Planning Association uh, and uh, the idea of a 20 minute neighborhood. Uh, this, of course, uh, means that uh, diverse and affordable homes will be available, well-connected paths, streets and spaces, schools, uh, good green spaces, local food production, and keeping jobs and money local, community health and well-being facilities, a place for all ages. But the point is, you won't be allowed to travel uh, further than, further that, 20 than that 20 minutes. Uh, and that would be uh, by walking or on a bicycle, and not not by car, because, of course, under the Green New Deal, we won't have cars because there isn't enough uh, uh, cobalt and, uh, and and so on to make the batteries to replace the current car fleet. So uh, this is what it's really about. And if you're in any doubt, uh, a few days ago, uh, Susan Mickey from uh, the Spy B group within Sage uh, was on Channel 5 News. Uh, we missed it at the time, but it's worth watching if you haven't seen it. Uh, have a listen to this. Professor Mickey, if I can start with you first. Do you think that this, this is going to be right? We've had so much hope on the vaccines, hopefully changing everything, bringing an end to the pandemic, bringing an end to this, these changes we've had in our lives. Do you think it won't be enough? Vaccines are a really important part of the pandemic control, but it's only one part. Test, trace and isolate system, border controls are really essential. And the third thing is people's behaviour. Um, that is the behaviour of social distancing, of when you're indoors, making sure there's good ventilation or if it's not wearing face masks and hand and surface hygiene. We'll need to keep these going in the long term. And that will be good not only for COVID, but also to reduce other... So when at you a say time long term, NHS is sorry going to interrupt, to Professor Mickey. When you say long term, what do you mean by that? Sure. How long? Very quickly. Um, I think forever. To some extent, because <laughs> Why didn't you say that? Oh, gosh, forever. So the news presenter giggling there uh, in a, well, in what concern, embarrassment, uh, shock, shock. I think yes. shock. Let's be let's be fair to her. Yes. I think she was stunned by that reply, and and in embarrassment, she giggled. Um, so you know, the policy clearly is going to be COVID zero. If there's a single case, um, that's going to result in lockdowns. We're seeing that in Australia. Uh, we've seen Australia leading the way in many ways. Of course, they're in the middle of their winter at the moment. Uh, and uh, so uh, we can expect the same type of uh, situation here. Um, and that's what surge testing is all about. And that's uh, why Deliveroo is such an important company these days. Yeah. So people to be kept locked up essentially in their homes, possibly just like a rabbit. It's a bit cruel to keep it in the hutch all the time. So you give it a little bit of space with some wire around it. So that's the 20 minutes distance. And this is the new normal, which Boris Johnson and his team 
uh, most of those people unelected advisors. Um, they're now just telling us that the future is that we're going to be locked in those hutches, those rabbit hutches. Um, um, in the meantime, what's going on in hospitals? Uh, well, we've been reporting that uh, hospitals are full, not full of COVID patients, just full. Uh, and another, uh, some more evidence, this is from The Independent today, hospital declares black alert as hundreds flood A&E. Uh, Barnsley Hospital struggles to find beds amid influx of, influx of patients. Uh, so the text says Barnsley Hospital found itself at breaking point when the number of patients arriving at its emergency department each day passed 300, according to internal emails seen by The Independent. The South Yorkshire Hospital was forced to declare uh, Opal 4 status referring to operational pressures escalation level on Tuesdays as it struggles to find beds. The black alert is the highest and is issued when a hospital is struggling or unable to deliver comprehensive care and patient safety is at risk. And the article goes on to make the point, as we've been making in our coverage over the last number of weeks, uh, that this pressure is not coming as a result of uh, COVID cases. Uh, this is other things, and we still don't have any definitive answers about what those other things. Is it a buildup of uh, acute cases as a result of the, the lack of healthcare over the last four months? Is it uh, adverse reactions to the vaccines, or is it a combination of uh, the both? I think it probably is the latter of those. Um, but nonetheless, uh, nobody is really asking why hospitals are in such a dire state at the moment. And yet, uh, when, <clears throat> when the government uh, was able to claim that there were uh, tens of thousands of cases around the country, uh, the mainstream media was camped outside the hospitals to watch the queues of ambulances and make sure that we got the headlines. Um, we get these trickles of the odd headline from week to week, but the uh, media not covering this in the same way they did in the winter, because it doesn't quite fit their narrative. Doesn't, no, doesn't fit that narrative at all. Well, let's um, jump back to the 22nd of March, where we picked up on the fact that one of the Daily Mail reporters, Sam Blanchard, was literally uh, taking the mickey, is probably the politest way to say it, um, with concerns in the general public about vaccine adverse reactions. So this was the headline from losing teeth to flatulence, the bizarre reactions Britons claim to have had after getting AstraZeneca's COVID vaccine and how unexplained crying is five times more common than deadly brain clot. Now we felt at the time that this is one of the most insulting headlines that we'd ever seen. Indeed, the whole article is utterly insulting to the intelligence of uh, the Daily Mail reader and other people in the UK. Uh, this was the young man who'd written the article. Uh, so his uh, key statement, we, we had everything he said on the uh, particular UK column edition, but Britain's claim AstraZeneca's corona vaccine has caused them to lose teeth and develop flatulence, male online can reveal. Now this was complete spin on what was actually happening, but. We had to pick him up on his crude uh, schoolboy humour to literally take the mickey out of the people reading the paper. Well, let's have a look at where the mail's got to now. Uh, this is the uh, headline from the uh, 22nd of June. So yesterday, four British men developed potentially deadly Guillain-Barré syndrome just days after having AstraZeneca's COVID jab. Four men in Nottingham developed uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome after a COVID jab. Cases linked to AstraZeneca's vaccine, but scientists have not identified the cause. 
The cases are linked to AstraZeneca's vaccine, but scientists have not identified the cause. Six cases of the syndrome were also identified in Australia and seven in India. So um, we seem to have an interesting change from the Daily Mail. The Sun also running the story, jab link, four Brits develop life-threatening condition days after having the COVID jab. And then both these papers used a particular doctor, Christopher Allen, in order to comment. We've just taken the um, comment from the Sun because actually uh, they were more detailed than in the Daily Mail. Perhaps that's a, uh, perhaps that's a significant thing. So according to Dr. Christopher Allen, clinical neuroscientist from Nottingham University, if the link is causal, uh, it could be due to a cross-reactive immune response to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and components of the peripheral immune system. So I think it's worthwhile if we just highlight that key little word there, if. So we start off with total uncertainty as to what's happening, but people are now in hospital with an extremely dangerous condition. So Dr. Christopher Allen went on, he said, we cannot be certain the jab caused the neurological illness and that they could have um, happened by chance. Those cases that he's referring to, they could have happened. It's pure chance, Mike. We really don't know if what happened, it could have been by chance. And uh, this development proves why jab surveillance and reporting is needed so that patients can get the help and support they need after having the vaccine. Mm. So we're not going to do the work beforehand to make sure that people are safe before they have the vaccine. No, no, no. We've got a reporting system so that when you've got an untreatable uh, adverse reaction as a result of the vaccine, uh, they can give you some sort of palliative care, really. So after you've fallen to pieces, they yeah. can try to pick those pieces up? Yeah. So we'll come back to the final uh, statement by Dr. Christopher Allen. SARS COVID-2 vaccines are very safe. Um, so let's bring the viewer today back to that first statement, if the link is caused. So Dr. Christopher Allen doesn't know whether the link is caused, but this is a very, very serious neurological condition. But he ends by saying that the vaccines are very safe. These people are not credible. What is in his head? Can he think in a common sense way anymore? Can he actually analyze a scientific problem? Because what he said to the press indicates that he's actually not got the mental acumen to deal with the issues that he's supposed to be dealing with. Or is it just me, Mike? No, and uh, if we look at what he said there, uh, it could be a cross-reactive immune response to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Well, yes, indeed, that is, that is correct. Um, and the fact that the spike protein uh, is dangerous and it is toxic and is known to be dangerous and toxic and is known to create adverse reactions has been in the scientific literature for very, very many years and was identified in previous attempts to create vaccines for coronaviruses as, be, as the reason why they couldn't proceed with creating vaccines for coronaviruses. So um, any suggestion that uh, this causal link isn't understood is somewhat disingenuous. And of course, if you're not actually doing the work to identify the causal link, then you can continue to deny that it exists. Yeah. So uh, bordering on the criminal, many people in our chat box are saying about the actions of these people, um, you know, whether they're just, I've got to use the word idiots, uh, used by the state. We don't know. Are they 
Are they uh, brutalized and pushed into this position? We don't know. Let's follow through on what the mail summarized. So here it is with a little summary. It's one of these famous little blue inserts that you get in articles now. Draw the eye to this because this is all true. So this is the Guillain-Barre syndrome. And uh, what does it have to say? Well, it says it's rare, um, common symptoms, weakness and tingling of the limbs. P patient's condition can worsen, uh, leading parts of the body. In some cases, the whole body being paralyzed. So this is not a mild effect. This is people's lives being destroyed. Uh, it says the syndrome is rare, affecting about one in 100,000 annually in the UK. And I would say, Mike, that if you declare something is as rare as this and suddenly you've got the incidence of it popping up, that's a red flag for public safety, which says we've got to stop the vaccine and we've got to investigate. But no, they're going to carry on. And down the bottom, it says very casually, there's no cure. Treatment focuses on restoring the nervous system. No, it doesn't. It focuses on trying to restore the nervous system. It can be fatal if it involves respiratory muscles. And here was the son's version of it. Um, so it tells us how to pronounce the, uh, the thing in the beginning. It says it's very rare and serious condition that affects the nerves. And then if we drop down to the bottom, you can die from Guillain-Barre syndrome if it causes blood clots or severe breathing difficulties. One in 20 cases is fatal. So um, this is the uh, latest report from the Mail and the Sun. But of course, it was two months ago that the UK column was reporting on this very condition. And we published, we broadcast the harsh reality of vaccine adverse effects, where a lady talked about how her husband had had the vaccine and had then suffered um, Guillain-Barre syndrome. And she reported that in the hospital wards, the doctors had at least another six patients with the same condition. So we reported that and uh, we pointed it out that it was an adverse effect of the, the vaccines back in March. We followed that up by reporting on what the British government actually says about this type of disorder. And this is the uh, excellent um, interface so that you can search the MHRA's yellow card vaccine adverse, uh, adverse effect data on the UK column. And if you put in the Guillain-Barre syndrome, we've come up with a total of 294 AstraZeneca cases and four fatalities. Moderna, one case. Pfizer, 38 cases with two fatalities and three cases unspecified. Well, uh, that's significantly higher than the number the mail was implying. Of course, Mike, because we now know that the papers don't tell the truth, although the BBC is reporting all about the truth, uh, which we'll cover a little bit later. But we just wanted to remind the audience that after the UK column had reported on a personal testimony identifying one man paralysed from the waist down in a ward with other men paralysed, and we showed what was happening by the UK government's own data, uh, the result was that we were banned for medical misinformation. But now all of a sudden, the Daily Mail and the Sun are reporting those vaccine adverse reactions, albeit they're not fully reporting them, and they're allowed to continue. Mm. So we just add, if you want more detail on this, this is just one source, but Swiss Policy Research has got some interesting comment on the syndrome itself. It says back in 19, 1976, 
a few hundred cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome triggered the stop of the US warp speed swine flu vaccination. So in 1976, when this cropped up, they stopped a vaccination campaign. Um, but what's happening today is when it's cropping up in, in result of the uh, COVID vaccines, as it says here, they're simply pushing ahead with the vaccine uh, program. Mm. So deliberate harm being unleashed on the public when the government knows that it's um, using these vaccines, which can create this sort of damage. Okay, if you uh, like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there and that would be very much appreciated and needed. Uh, and also do share any material you see on the various platforms on Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey and so on. Um, a reminder that uh, Saturday, of course, is the next big one, the next big uh, march in London. Uh, Freedom from Vax Passports Enslavement is how it's subtitled. Uh, that's taking place uh, starting at 1 p.m. Uh, details on their Telegram channel and also many of other Telegram channels. Um, so uh, we don't know exactly where that's going to kick off from. We'll find out in due course. Um, of course, that means that we won't be doing a news on Friday because we're going to go to, to this and we're not going to be doing a news on Monday because we'll be traveling back from it. Uh, we'll also be uh, in the on the green outside Parliament um, on Sunday between 12 and 2 if anybody wants to come uh, for uh, a chat, a, a chat and a picnic or something or whatever you want to do. Uh, so you'd be very welcome. Okay, well, just a reminder that uh, the interview with Debbie Evans about PCR testing and how those tests are being used to take DNA samples, which are leading through to the multi-trillion pound genome sequencing industry, uh, that's available there on the UK column. And can we invite people to share it? Uh, interestingly enough, it's circulating uh, quite well already. Uh, this was... Um, sent in to me yesterday. So it's uh, it's a comment in Turkish about this particular edition. I haven't got a full translation, but I'm told that this is essentially a complimentary comment and uh, the video is circulating. So if you can help with that, please do. And for those of you who haven't seen it, we're giving a basic interview of the framework of this vast genome sequencing industry. So it takes you from nothing to understanding what's there in the background. Now, we had an email in, and this was very simple. It was picking up on the fact that the NHS now is showing that it's got no duty of care to those who do not want to take up an experimental drug that's known to have a greater risk of death and injury than the virus is meant to protect us from. The death of the corrupt Conservative Party is happening before our very eyes. Well, I think the Conservative Party's gone, the Labour Party is gone, and as we said on Monday, really the whole of the uh, parliamentary system has gone. Um, we should have a video here of the uh, policeman handing in the... Right, so are you going to introduce that? Yes, I think so. So several of our viewers have uh, sent through um, video clips and comment about uh, policeman Mike Sexton um, handing in um, basically documents to the police um, showing that uh, what is being carried out by the government at the moment in the whole of the COVID and the vaccine programme is unlawful. Now, we've often said it takes courage to walk into the cop shop to actually take the battle home to them. So we thought we'd just show a couple of short clips and then we've got a little bit of comment 
about what took place. This is the letter from the Indian government to the World Health Organization to prove and to show there's no such thing as the Indian variant. They've, they've made that public. I'll leave you a copy of that as well. Yep. Okay. This is the oath of a constable to show that you are independent of government, and it says, police constables are servants of the Crown and are strictly independent of Her Majesty's government. It would be unlawful for any member of government, such as the Prime Minister, to attempt to control, coerce, direct or command constables of any rank. Constables are not employees of the police and cannot take individual action. Industrial action, I do apologise. Whilst performing their role as constables and considered in law to be special legal entities who are responsible for their own actions when carrying out police duties. And then, this is the crime recording standards. A belief by the victim or a person reasonably assumed to be acting on behalf of the victim that a crime has occurred is usually sufficient, sufficient to justify its recording. That's the crime recording guidelines by the Home Office, April 2020. So I'll be asking for a crime number today. The vision and purpose statement where I have to be treated as a victim of crime and dealt with accordingly and it is incumbent upon you as a constable to investigate the allegations that I'm making. And that's all there. That's the vision and purpose statement. Handed that to every police officer. And that's just the national crime recording. And this is to any police constable who fails to investigate these crimes. It's a dereliction of duty. Any deliberate or accidental failure to do what you should do as part of your job is a dereliction of duty. And that's just important there. Okay, and we should have a second uh, little clip to go with that. Therefore, guilty of misconduct in public office and misfeasance in public office. The vaccine programme must be stopped as a matter of urgency to protect people from death, injury and harm, and the evidence is now overwhelming. It is incumbent upon you, the police, to make sure this happens now, today, before any more people die, suffer serious harm and injury, and to protect the people of this country and to protect the NHS. No individual or organisation are above the law. The police have a duty to investigate these serious allegations, arrest those responsible and put them before the court with the advice from the Crown Prosecution Service and the Director of Public Prosecution. This is something that must happen now today and cannot and must not wait. The police are independent of the government and represent the people. This is your duty of office, fully supported by the oath that you swore. So a lot of courage to do that. Um, he'd taken the battle directly into Leamington Spa uh, police station. And of course, he's got the papers there and he's putting the case across uh, to, directly to the receiving constable. So this is a powerful thing. You can be sure it's going to be discussed in that police station, whatever else happens in the formal legal process. But you had some comment on the Indian side, Michael. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a, it's it's. Uh, Taking the whole, th the what he did as a whole, this is a minor point, but just just one quick correction, and that is uh, the statement from the Indian government said was was really concerned about the labelling of the variant as the Indian variant, uh, and they felt that that labelling was false. Uh, there's no such variant of COVID nineteen scientifically cited as such by the World Health Organization, is what the Indian government said. World Health Organization has not associated the term Indian variant with the B.1.617 variant of the coronavirus in any of its reports. And that is why it's now uh, called the Delta variant. And well, it's being, there's now a Delta plus variant coming along. Um, so uh, I just wanted to make that, uh, that clarification. Yeah. Now, okay. But it doesn't change the, no. it doesn't change the, the, the effort in any way and, and the points that he was making. Yes, and also we, we, haven't, we haven't got the full clip of everything that was said there, but we are going to 
say that it does take huge courage to do this uh, when we're at the heart of the uh, European Union battle. Many people went into police stations around the country to report treason. And uh, I was one of those people and a fascinating response from the police because you might have at least expected them to be quiet and considerate as evidence was laid on the table in front of them. But actually, we were met with a very, very hostile and aggressive response, which actually said to us that presumably the act of taking those documents into the police station must have hit home pretty hard. Uh, now, uh, of course, UK Column Archive uh, video on demand for the UK Column News and other videos is now being hosted by Rumble. Um, and uh, well, people have been saying, some people have been saying that they can't watch the videos. Um, we were investigating why that was. And if you remember uh, on the last program or the one before, we mentioned that uh, uh, it seemed to be some kind of block. Uh, well, we now understand what block it is. Uh, it's the, the common factor seems to be that people are on Sky as a broadband provider. Um, and well, Sky has a facility uh, called Broadband Shield. And uh, Sky says that Broadband Shield is automatically turned on when you join Sky Broadband and it's set so that it's suitable for teenagers during the day and adults in the evening. But it's easy to change sex, uh, settings like your age rating and how to block or allow specific websites. You need your Sky ID to view or change your settings. And they say uh, to get help, that you can get help with Sky Broadband Shield, including if you're having trouble signing in to view or change your settings with, uh, with a websites being blocked incorrectly, that's their uh, typo, uh, using a VPN with Sky Broadband Shield or if it's not working. So um, what we have there is uh, the content filter to make sure that uh, you're only getting approved content by default. Uh, and if you want to get unapproved content, you've got to contact them or get on the website and change the settings uh, so that you can get access to that unapproved content. That seems to be the common factor in what's uh, happening when people hit the play button and just get a black screen uh, to, in return. Yeah, is this sort of hidden censorship? Would you call it that? Well, it's, it's disingenuous, it's, isn't it? What, what we're seeing is the formation of uh, the Great Firewall of Britain. Uh, I'm not sure whether uh, BT is doing the same. I believe they are, or doing similar, uh, Tiscally as well, perhaps. Uh, but uh, maybe this says that people should be using some of the smaller broadband providers that don't uh, don't behave in this way and challenge it because um, sure. the emails going back into these companies do make a difference. Now I was uh, doing my troll of the uh, of the news a couple of days ago and uh, spotted this article on the Mail. Uh, Keeping my small business going through lockdown was tough, but advertising on Mail Online has given me a fresh start. One beautician on her post-pandemic recovery plans. Um, not sure that that was the headline at the time, but anyway. I had a read at it and, and uh, it's very quickly became an, an advertisement for the mail, really, with companies like Lawrence and mine. Mail Online has launched a new advertising platform called Ad Manager to help small and medium-sized enterprise come back thriving, advertise with us. So this wasn't editorial content at all. It was advertising content. And in fact, once you get uh, halfway down this article, it turns into a tutorial on how to use Ad Manager. So it is uh, advertising uh, content in the guise of editorial, which of course is against the rules. So I thought as a bit of a laugh, uh, I would uh, put in a report to the Advertising Standards Agency. 
and I did it uh, in a private capacity, so I was not uh, representing the UK column, uh, as you'll see in a second. And this was the response that I got uh, from Christina uh, Remigio uh, at the Advertising Stage, uh, Standards Agency. She said, Dear Mr. Robinson, thank you for contacting the Advertising Stage Standards Authority. Sorry. Uh, I understand that you wish to raise a complaint about Associated Newspapers Limited and that in relation to the advertiser, you are a competitor by the name of UK Column. Uh, and as such, we are unable to consider your complaint further unless you follow the procedures set out below. Uh, our policy requires that those who wish to raise concerns about a competitor try to resolve them with them directly in the first instance. You don't, do not appear to have contacted your competitor and we therefore cannot take your complaint further at this stage. If you would like to pursue your complaint, uh, we would ask uh, you to read the following steps which need to be followed and they give me the instructions. But it was this point here that really struck me uh, and that in relation to the advertiser, you are a competitor by the name of UK Column. I'm very flattered that the Advertising Standards Authority thinks that we are a competitor of the Daily Mail. Uh, our turnover is significantly less than theirs um, and, uh, and so on. But the key point here uh, was that I did not identify myself as being associated with the UK column. Uh, the reason that my email address is partly uh, redacted there is because it's a private personal email address that I have never used uh, to do UK column business. Um, and so my question is, how does this person know that I am a competitor by the name of UK column? How did she associate that email address with the UK column because it has never been associated with the UK column in any way, shape or form. I'm very careful about that. So I'm asking a question now because if we remind ourselves about the government censorship network, um, at the bottom of this list on the right here under the cabinet office is the Freedom of Information Clearinghouse. Now the allegation not denied uh, by the government is that they have a list of names and email addresses for anybody, uh, people, shall we call them uh, inquirers of concern, let's call them that. Um, anybody applying or putting in a freedom of information request to any government agency or public body, if they're on that list, the question that they ask immediately goes to the freedom of information clearinghouse inside the cabinet office and it's answered in a central location. So there is a list. And so my question then is, what kind of list is this? Do, are the intelligence services involved in gathering this list? Does the lady at the Advertising Standards Authority know that that email address belonged to me as a, as a, a staffer at the UK column? Does, does she know that because that email address is on a list? Um, I don't know the answer to this, but I find it very interesting because it wasn't we believe you're, uh, you're, you're an employee of the UK column. It was you are the UK column. It was definitive. Yeah. Um, and so there are some questions to be answered here, and I will keep everybody informed as we discover the answers. And it's going, it's going to be fascinating what the result is because we're going to be able to show that now this intelligence community, which is controlled from the cabinet office, we don't have a party political system. We've got a government of occupation that, amongst others, they control the Advertising Standards Authority. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting one. But don't worry because the BBC is big on truth. So let's have a look at this little headline. Uh, trust in news has grown in the UK during the pandemic research shows. So we can all relax here because the BBC is into its favourite subject of truth. 
Um, well, let's have a look at some of the statements. It says the Reuters Institute Digital News Report conducted in January this year found that 36% of people in the UK trust most news most of the time. Stay with this, Mike, because okay. I've got a question for you. Uh, that figure is up from 28% in January 2020 before the pandemic began. So 36% of people trust most news most of the time. Uh, my brain says that the real headline is not that the vast majority, sorry, so the real headline is that the vast majority of people do not trust most news most of the time because 36% is a minority. That's absolutely correct. Okay, well, I'm reassured about this because uh, we're doing this live and you could have come back and said, no, I've got it wrong. So let's follow through. But it's still 14 percentage points down on where it was prior to the Brexit vote in 2016. So it's actually the situation's worse. Uh, the report found that strictly regulated impartial broadcasters like the BBC, ITV, Sky News and Channel 4 remain the most trusted, followed by national broadsheet newspapers. So I have to post this one with the real headline is that the strictly regulated impartial broadcasters like the BBC and the broadsheet newspapers remain the most untrusted. I wonder why that could be. Could because, be because, because they're not impartial? <laughs> well, they're not impartial, but this article is turning the truth on its head and it's doing it deliberately. So what the BBC is showing is that most people do not trust the BBC and its friends and partners like ITV, Sky News and Channel 4. Read the BBC's article and you will see exactly what the truth is. Mm. Uh, well, where does all this come from? Well, um, this man, uh, he, he is quoted in the article. It's Nick Newman. He's from Reuters Institute. The focus on factual reporting during the COVID-19 crisis may have made the news seem more straightforward. <laughs> well, the story has also had the effect of squeezing out more partisan political news. So the truth became more straightforward and they squeezed out uh, troublesome partisan news. I'm being a little bit naughty here because I'm paraphrasing, but this is Nick Newman. And where's he come from? Well, he's come from that Reuters Institute. And if you go to their website, uh, you can see that they've teamed up with good old Oxford University. It's always in there somewhere. And this is the executive summary of that report. Um, he went on to say, this may be a temporary effect, but in almost all countries, we see audiences placing a greater premium on accurate and reliable news sources. Now, this is true because more people are going to social media in order to find out what the truth is. They're abandoning newspapers, they're abandoning the BBC, and they're going to accurate, reliable sources like the UK column. So we're going to say well done to Nick Newman. Uh, what can we tell you about him? Well, when we see what Reuters says, it says Nick Newman is a journalist and digital strategist who played a key role in shaping the BBC's internet services over more than a decade. He was a founding member of BBC's new website, leading international coverage as world editor 1997 to 2001. So what we've actually got here, and if you go and have a look at his LinkedIn, is we've got a complete BBC man. Mm. He is a BBC man. He's now um, writing in the BBC, but the BBC doesn't bother to tell you it's one of their own. So 
I think we're just going to label this BBC article as more fake news from Tim Davey, who, of course, we've now labelled as the BBC's king of hearts and minds. Um, outrageous stuff from the BBC, uh, but clearly they're panicking because they're losing viewers. Yes. Uh, okay, let's come back onto the issue of inflation. And the Financial Times has a fantastic opinion piece. Uh, it's entitled, Is China an Inflationary Force Now? Uh, we've got to attack China because that's the only thing to do uh, when you, the world is collapsing around your ears. You've got to find an external enemy to keep everybody focused on. Uh, the standard explanation uh, says this op-ed uh, for why inflation has been so low for so long in so many places is three words long, technology and globalization. The technology side has a lot to do with Moore's law. Over time, more of the goods and services we buy are digital and computing power gets cheaper all the time. The globalization side has a lot to do with China. Uh, its export machine gives us all cheap stuff and suppresses wages for manufacturing industries worldwide. This is just staggering hypocrisy because of course the reason that China is the economic powerhouse that it is uh, these days is because Western companies, Western financial industry encouraged Western companies to outsource their manufacturing to China where they could take advantage of the cheap labor that was available there and the suppression of wages that was available there. So amazing, but let's just remind ourselves exactly where the inflationary force is coming from and what China's position in the table is, because as we pointed out on Monday, uh, this is the central bank balance sheet expansion from 2007 to the present day. And we find the Federal Reserve Board uh, at the very top of the list with 793% increase uh, in their balance sheets uh, since uh, 2007. Uh, bank of England comes second with 792%. Bank of Japan third on this particular table with 541%. Uh, European Central Bank uh, with 408% and the People's Central Bank of China, uh, well, they come as poor fifth in that particular list with only 125% increase in their balance sheet. So, so is China really the major inflationary driver? I'm not entirely clear that it is. But look, there's a couple of errors on this table that I just wanted to highlight. The first one is a typographical one. Uh, because where it says Federal Reserve Board at the top there, it says billion dollars. Well, in fact, that should be a million dollars. So it's seven. Okay, so that uh, hopefully clarifies that one. But the main problem is that the uh, June 21 figure is already out of date since this was published on Monday, uh, because it's no longer uh, it's no longer 7.9 million million uh, dollars. It's now uh, 8.064 million million dollars. Uh, so it's already gone up in two days or three days, whatever it was. It's incredible. So what else are we facing at the moment, which is sort of creating an inflationary pressure? Well, of course, the lack of supply is a problem. Uh, and uh, so we've got article after article talking about this. This is from, this is from uh, uh, Supply Chain Quarterly. COVID-related challenges to uh, plague supply chains in 2021. So they're talking about the various problems with supply of various uh, uh, commodities. Uh, here is food manufacturer, export rules and container crisis threaten supply chain. Now, many people uh, aren't aware that there's a container crisis, but what they're saying here is uh, concerns over the future of UK and EU trade come as a continued shortage of shipping containers created more supply chain headaches. So this has got nothing to do with Brexit, despite the fact that often 
these uh, supply chain issues are being uh, put in Brexit language. It has got nothing to do with this. It's, they go on to say the scarcity of containers has pushed up shipping prices to near record highs. According to Walker Logistics, by the end of 2020, the cost of shipping goods from China to Northern Europe, one of the most popular trade routes, had quadrupled from levels at the start of the year. Charlie Walker, head of marketing, warned uh, that the problem had increased pressure on British retailers and manufacturers when businesses already had to contend with the impact of Brexit and the pandemic on profits. Uh, he advised any businesses that imported products to order their next consignment much earlier. Uh, and so there aren't enough shipping, shipping containers. What else is going on? Uh, soaring soy demand and the future corporate supply chain pledges, says Green Biz. Um, and uh, just to reinforce what David was saying on Monday, another engineering uh, company here. I listened to you today talking about inflation. Uh, I have a small engineering company and lately to let you know that when I quote a job, I get prices for steel and I'm told that they can only hold the price for what I need for three days. Plastics are also rapidly rising. So it is just a, quite a staggering situation. We've got the financial expansion uh, creating uh, you know, inflationary pressures. We've also got supply side problems, supply chain problems, which are going to you know, increase demand, which uh, uh, also puts the price up significantly as well. Yeah, we, we've also had comment from uh, people in construction in the local Plymouth area uh, telling us there's problems with plasterboard, there's problems with timber, there's problems with all sorts of construction materials. So this is a picture of what's coming, Mike, engineered breakdown. Yeah, absolutely. But we don't need to worry because the Global Wealth Report is out from Credit Suisse. And that is fantastic news because apparently there are more millionaires than ever uh, as a result of house price inflation, for example. Um, and this is the, the key point of what they are saying in this report. Global wealth is projected to rise by 39% over the next five years, reaching 583 trillion US dollars by 2025. Low and middle income countries are responsible for 42% of the growth, although they account for just 33% of current wealth. Uh, wealth per adult is projected to increase by 31%, passing the watershed mark of 100,000 US dollars. The number of millionaires will also grow markedly over the next five years, reaching 84 million, while the number of uh, UNHWIs should reach uh, 344,000. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not quite aware of what that is. But nonetheless, uh, the, uh, their chief investment officer said, uh, there's no denying that actions taken by governments and central banks to organize massive income transfer programs to support individuals and businesses during the pandemic uh, has uh, and led by lowering interest rates, have successfully averted full-scale global crisis. These people are either on, I don't know, they're on some kind of psychotropic drugs or something because this is ridiculous. Uh, she said the lowering of interest rates by central banks has probably had the greatest impact. It is a major reason why share prices and house prices have flourished, and these translate directly into our valuations of household wealth. Um, what we are seeing is not flourishing uh, of economies. Product of economy, the production of the produ productivities of economies has collapsed. What we're seeing is inflation, and it is only going to get worse in the coming weeks, months. Yeah. Well, the Guardian's on the case, luckily, Mike. Oh, good. Or, uh, not. Um, I picked this one up because the Guardian getting very, very excited that the Met Police have made a second arrest after BBC's Nick Watt was confronted on the street. And if you go into the article and you read 
even what the Guardian reports about this, that poor, poor Nicky Watt, he, he had some people shouting at him and uh, they clustered around him a bit too close and they shouted at him and he ran away through the police lines back in through the gate, security gate, into uh, Downing Street. This man, as a BBC journalist, a senior BBC journalist, is so weak and precious that if you shout at him in the street, you're going to be lifted by the police. Uh, well, I thought we'd focus a bit on the editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner. Um, she says that the Guardian Media Group is a global news organisation that deli delivers fearless investigative journalism, really? giving a voice to the powerless and holding power to account. When have you ever seen the Guardian actually do that, Mike? Uh, never. I've never seen it happen, but Catherine seems to think this is true. She went on, she says, our independent ownership structure means we're entirely free from political and commercial influence. Only our values determine the stories we choose to cover. Uh -huh. So if there's half a million plus people protesting in London, the Guardian values mean that they're not going to cover that story because those people are not part of the Guardian values. Um, but it says cover relentlessly and courageously. Do you get the feel for this lady? Yeah. Um, so um, I think we're going to say fantasy, really. She ended by saying since 1821, the mission of The Guardian has been to use clarity and imagination to build hope. Mm. Where does that actually take you? You're in a country which is being taken to pieces. It's being destroyed. People harmed by vaccine. But you're running a newspaper so that you can increase hope. Yes. Uh, we'll, we'll just end because we don't know what else to say. Um, well, let's move on then to online safety because uh, clearly uh, we've got to be safe online. Uh, and Index on Censorship, we're running an event, a, a live streamed event this morning, uh, legal to say, legal to type, a panel discussion. Uh, and David Davis MP was uh, taking part on that. Uh, so he is going to uh, lead a campaign against the new online safety bill. Apparently, he's branding it a censor's charter. Um, he compared the online safety bill during this live stream to uh, uh, 1984, George Orwell's novel, of course. Uh, he accused ministers outsourcing the policing of the internet to the big tech companies. Uh, and he said, uh, well, let's have a look at what he said. Um, he said, the online safety bill is a censor's charter. Lobby groups will be able to push social networks to take down content they view as not politically correct, even though the content is legal. Uh, the idea we should force Silicon Valley com uh, companies to police Britain's speech online seems out of Orwell's 1984, and it's not what our voters expect of us. Um, so uh, he uh, he's backing a report which online uh, which Index on Censorship, sorry, are going to uh, release today, I believe. Um, and uh, so they are saying, you know, the, the, the uh, duty of care model that the online safety bill proposes based on health and safety legislation is overly simplistic. He said it's going to, they are going to say that it's going to force tech companies uh, to delete posts that are considered harmful uh, with fines of up to 10% turnover. Plus, of course, uh, if you don't cooperate, if you're a big tech company, you don't cooperate with Ofcom, um, you are uh, potentially as an individual manager on the receiving end of a, a criminal charge. Um, and uh, they're saying that uh, the government's failure to define what constitutes harmful. So there's no definition of what harmful actually means. Uh, it effectively means that the scope is so broad uh, that perfectly legal po posts are going to be banned. Uh, this is absolutely correct. 
So um, I just want to also highlight uh, this article from Edward Snowden uh, on his blog, Continuing Ed, the most dangerous censorship, because of course the online safety bill is a critical bill and everybody that's watching this program should be getting to understand what it represents and uh, really doing something about it if they want to uh, be able to continue to speak out on social media in the not too distant future. But Snowden's making a, another point here. He's talking about the, the self-censorship that's going on at the moment, which undoubtedly it is. And I just want to highlight uh, his closing paragraph here. It's worth reading the whole thing. Um, so he's saying that unlike contemporary North Korea or Saudi Arabia, uh, the coercive apparatus doesn't have to be the secret police knocking at the door. Uh, fear of losing a job or of losing an, an admission to school or of losing the right to live in the country of your birth or merely of social ostracism. Uh, many of today's best minds in so-called free democratic societies have stopped trying to say what they think and feel and have fallen silent. Uh, that or they adopt the party line of whatever party they would like to be invited to, whatever party their livelihoods depend on. And this is, I think, Brian, a really critical point because we're seeing huge amounts of self-censorship at the moment. We've, we have seen some very brave people, Mike Eden, uh, the likes of that coming out, for example, and saying, uh, explaining why they do not agree with uh, current COVID policy. There are equivalents um, who speak out against uh, current um, uh, climate change policy and so on. But increasingly, people are unwilling to speak out and say what they actually believe because for fear of the fact that any post to social media will be dug up 10 years later and they won't get uh, yeah. the job that they've applied for or whatever. So, uh, so uh, And the party line has become stronger and stronger because, of course, we know that the mainstream political parties are using applied behavioural psychology on their MPs and their staff members in order for them to be mesmerised, we use that expression, reframed into following the party line. So this is, this, is not a, this is not guesswork. It's all there in the paperwork that um, the applied behavioural psychology being unleashed on the public uh, in the COVID um, um, scandemic is also being used to control MPs and staff members in Westminster and, and in the Cabinet Office hierarchy. So very dangerous stuff. Well, um, we participated a couple of weeks ago with uh, Rainer Fulmuck's inquiry in Germany, giving him some information about that very behavioural insights application in UK, but also uh, talking about wider things uh, happening. Uh, his inquiry has recently been uh, listening to evidence from the Dutch equivalent, and uh, he recently had... Uh, this father and daughter, Dr. Peter Cout and his daughter, Jade, who were giving evidence. Essentially, they're Dutch and they run an equivalent to the German inquiry, but they come in front of Reiner Formick and his team to tell what was actually happening in Holland. And a large part of what they had to say was to do with what they're being told by Dutch police. This is just the, um, uh, uh, these are some slides that were actually put up in the, in the main video clip. Uh, but BPOC is the Dutch equivalent of uh, Reiner Fulmuck's own organisation. So let's uh, hear what the father and daughter team had to say. Uh, uh, that coordinator, terrorist coordinator, uh, sent us a letter back 
and he excused and he said, well, uh, we don't mean that you are terrorists. We just mean that you are investigating the government. That's all we said. So we, we, we left it at that because we thought, well, um, we didn't want to invest too much time in it, but they are watching us. Mm -hmm. And we discovered that last week because without any warning, last week in the night from Tuesday on Wednesday, YouTube took our uh, channel offline, mm -hmm. just yeah. just like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes. So, and we got an, an email from YouTube that the government asked YouTube to took our channel offline. That's you're going to have to ask the government. Yes, we go. That is yeah. true. Yes, next Monday. Because you can't trust YouTube either. No. no. So we, we, we uh, asked YouTube uh, who did that, who asked that at the government, which ministry or which. Yeah. And they didn't want to answer that. So we take the state and YouTube next Monday to court. Very good. Yes, because we want to know that. Mm -hmm. And um, so the government is watching us. And our, but our lawyer sent an email to YouTube and he called them. And he said, uh, we expect you in court today at 4 o'clock. <laughs> and 15 minutes later, our channel was online again. Just like that. That's very good. Yeah, so that's very interesting. And, um, but that was no reason for us not to go to court, because now we want to know who, did this? who ordered YouTube to our channel offline, because uh, this is un unheard of. So the key, the key part coming across in this is that essentially the Dutch government via its anti-terrorism um, organization initially appears to have taken action against this organization. So we've now got direct government censorship just coming in and shutting you down, not because you've actually done anything against the law, but presumably somebody's just made the decision that you're too much of a nuisance, you're going to be closed, bang, the doors shut and you're taken offline. Now, they've got the wherewithal to challenge that within the court, and it's very interesting to hear uh, Dr. Kurt say that basically um, they made an initial court challenge and then suddenly their channel was reinstated. But as he said, we need to find out who has been making these decisions in the government. Let's follow on with the next bit of the clip, and this is Jade, the daughter, speaking. She's received a lot of information from the Dutch police talking about how they're being threatened and bullied into following the line over what's happening with COVID and lockdown and social distancing. And she's saying that many of the uh, police or a significant number of the police have received pretty unpleasant threats to get them to tow the, the official government line in Holland. Um, what's also very disturbing is that apparently there, um, there is now a, a culture that has been growing since the corona crisis, but also before, in which unwanted behavior is being uh, punished by your colleagues. As in, um, we had some female officers um, tell us their story and they're saying, yeah, if you, um, if you get a reputation for not wanting to beat protesters or for being against the corona rules, then they will... Um, accost me with sexism and they will squeeze my bottom and they will touch my breast when I don't want them to. And they will say, yeah, their colleagues will do that. Also, one uh, female officer had been so severely threatened and uh, harassed that she quit and is now depressed and, and under uh, guidance from a uh, therapist. Um, and she quit, but she still isn't being left alone because her colleagues are still calling her, coming to her house and saying she's a traitor and, you know, that they're going to... 
there are rape threats and, and um, there is also significant racism within the organization. Um, they are using this against each other, but also against people who've been arrested. Um, people who are arrested at protests are often denied food, uh, water, medical care. Um, according to the law in the Netherlands, police officers are uh, obligated to care for people who have been hurt by, by their actions, um, even if it is uh, a situation in which violence is justified, if, if they hurt someone, they have to provide them with medical attention. This is not happening. Structurally, people are being put in cells while they're bleeding, while they're injured, and no doctor is being sent to them. They're not being fed. Um, people who are uh, minors are being kept overnight in cells and forbidden from speaking to their parents, which is also illegal. Um, they're not even calling the parents. They're, they can't have contact with their parents. It's the, we've been told a lot more disturbing stuff than we expected initially. So very serious um, things being said there. What we're obviously hearing is about the breakdown in at least one way of uh, the Dutch police, but brutality and not adhering to the law and the regulations is coming in. We are seeing this happening in other countries. Uh, how do we describe this? We could say East Germany, we could say Soviet Russia, but I think our audience knows exactly where things head if this type of breakdown in the justice and the policing system happens. So we're going to say we're very grateful to uh, Rainer Formick and his team for giving people the opportunity to speak out. And of course, it's all being uh, publicised, so the truth is getting out there. Uh, but also um, bravery from this um, uh, Dr. Kaut, I think I should have pronounced his name, and his daughter Jade for speaking up, and those Dutch policemen and women who are coming to the BOPC in order to give their testimony. Mm. Okay, um, quite a lot of comment on this on Twitter. This was pushed out by the uh, Department of Education, yes, uh, on the 21st of June. Uh, we're encouraging schools across the UK uh, to celebrate One Britain, One Nation Day uh, on the 25th of June when children can learn about our shared values of tolerance, kindness, kindness pride and respect. And there's a hashtag OBON Day 21 uh, and, another, and, uh, and a, a Twitter account uh, at One Britain, One Nation with the ones being the number one rather than spelt. Uh, so uh, the response on Twitter has been, uh, uh, as you might expect, uh, nothing to worry about extracurricular indoctrination of children supported by government, obviously. Uh, and uh, well, there's Adolf there in amongst all the children. Um, that's from uh, Nick Stevenson. Uh, and uh, the next one says, Ein Volk, Ein Reich. Uh, and uh, another one along the same lines from Devenant saying, member of the Hitler Youth in 1941 with an image there uh, by August Sander. Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein, ein Führer, sound familiar. Um, so this is the website that's being created uh, for One Britain, One Nation. It's that simple, apparently. Welcome to One Britain, One Nation. What are they saying about themselves? Uh, so they, they want to promote the concept of responsible citizenship to instill a sense of personal pride in all our citizens of being British uh, and create a real sense of collective identity regarding one, regardless of one's background, so whether you're British or not. Uh, to, facil to facilitate, inspire, and strengthen the spirit of inclusion 
and involvement and social responsibility in all our communities in an effort to promote peaceful, respectful coexistence in citizens who play a more active part in the well-being of our nation. Um, to recognize, acknowledge and value our diverse communities and their cultural heritage while aiming to facilitate and harness their integration into mainstream Britain and to enhance and the image of our nation both nationally and internationally. And then they tell us about all the things that they want. And the best one was um, they want to create a spirit of inclusion with a collective purpose. It's not a common purpose, it's a collective purpose uh, and a common future where we all seek to eliminate hatred, intolerance and discrimination of any kind so that all our people can feel and develop a strong and shared sense of belonging to other to order, sorry, in order to showcase their pride, passion, and love for our great nation. Of course, uh, Brian, as we have heard and reported over the years, um, when you push for this type of diversity type related material, when you start pushing that out, uh, that has a tendency to not uh, make things more inclusive, but actually to break things apart yeah, even harder. So is that what this is about? Uh, I think it will partly be that, but also they are desperate to bring in this collective society where people uh, people only demonstrate when the government's told them what they're going to demonstrate about, where they can demonstrate. This is the hive mind, which is clearly a part of the applied behavioural psychology. This is a, the attack on people in UK. The government simply wants a hive mind. And if you can get the children into that hive mind early, you are going to be winning. So um, that's what I think they're doing here. They're going for the children's minds. Well, here is the uh, chief executive and founder of One Britain, One Nation. Uh, and as chair and founder of the British Indian Association, he was responsible for bringing together thousands of people from diverse backgrounds. Uh, in his professional capacity, he was a senior police officer with the rank of inspector with West Yorkshire Police. In over two decades of police service, he has gained much experience in working with people from all backgrounds. And in 2006, he was nominated to lead the most challenging and sensitive area uh, of Manningham in Bradford. Uh, in 1995 and 2001, this area saw riots, which were described as the worst disorder ever witnessed in mainland Britain. But he sorted it all out, and so he's going to sort out the whole country now. Yeah, apparently. Yes. We should leave somebody on, sorry, we should leave on a, at least a bit of humour today because I think we've been hitting the audience uh, pretty hard with the facts and the truth about what's really going on in UK. Um, so let's bring in this one, uh, which just amused me. So it's from the United States Nautical Institute and they've got an article, this is real, it says that the position of two NATO uh, ships were falsified near the Russian Black Sea naval base. So ships at sea can be tracked on an international tracking system. And uh, two warships, um, that was HMS Defender and the Dutch ship Evertsen, um, were apparently on a visit in Odessa. But the false AIS tracks uh, showed them going to within two miles of Sevastopol. And of course, uh, this has resulted in Quite an article here. This is just a part of it. So lots of details about the ship, a Type 45 daring class destroyer being pretty daring by going close to Sevastopol, according to this fake track. Um, and um, so then there's a debate over who would who would get in there and falsify the system. Well, I just felt that as usual, it was sort of heading, you know, against the um, heading to say those nasty Russians have been up to something. 
Um, but certainly if the ships were two miles off the harbour, day or night, the Russians could have taken some pictures of them. Um, so who would fake this and why? I, I think even the United States Nautical Institute, Mike, is puzzled as to what's actually going on here. It's a bit cartoonish. Well, indeed it is. And uh, first of all, the ships never left port uh, because they were on uh, CCTV there all night. But my question, Brian, the question that struck me was, would the Russians be using AIS to track NATO ships anyway? Uh, so, you know, the whole story, in a sense, is completely mm -hmm. ridiculous because even if even if it was anything other than a, some kind of uh, software bug, um, you know, this wasn't going to create an international incident. No. So it's just... <laughs> no, so we'll, we'll chuckle about it. If anybody out there can help us with this one, we'd like a bit of help. But uh, as some wag has said in the chat box, clearly they weren't using track and trace and maybe they should adopt the UK system. That is only a joke, of course. Um, now, uh, David had uh, hoped that I would have uh, so one final little bit of content for the end of the programme today, but I wasn't able to, I didn't just run out of time, so I do apologise for that. We will find another way to get it out to, to all of you uh, in due course. This, of course, is our last UK column news until next Wednesday, and we hope to see as many people as possible uh, at the weekend in London. Yeah. And also, as always, a very, very big thank you to our overseas viewers. We know that overseas viewers are growing considerably. Um, we can't reply to all the emails that we're getting, but thank you very much for all of the emails of support and many people giving us information. We're very keen, on, as well as documents, on images and little video clips, because if you're sending those from another country, as far as we're concerned, then obviously that brings whatever the issue is in Australia or New Zealand or the States, wherever, that very much brings it alive for the audience. So we are interested in images, clips, stories and documents if you're there overseas. And also a very big thank you to people who've come across to fully support the UK column now by signing up to become uh, full-time members. This is really excellent. We know that there's still quite a proportion of people out there who were uh, viewing us on YouTube, uh, who are still taking advantage of free output. We're going to encourage you to come across and join us as paid up members, because we're going to need all the help we can get to face the censorship, which is clearly growing around UK column. Yes, our, our fixed costs aren't going down at this point. Fixed costs are not going down. And as the audience goes up, it's going to cost us more uh, to buy the channel capacity to get the news out. So if you watch us and value us, uh, we're not saying to people who are already supporting us, we want more from you. We don't believe that's right. What we would like to say is that if you're not paying in any way, but you value what we're doing, please effectively join up and become a paid up member. That's it. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back at the same time on Wednesday next week. On Wednesday next week. Had to think about that one. Yeah. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.